Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Imagine how a Russian hacker thinks about our upcoming elections. We'll discuss the Moscow midterms. The Latin Latino Film Festival is underway. We'll talk with filmmakers from two movies. And Mexican immigrants have had a long artistic impact on Chicago. We'll hear about a new exhibit that takes you from the Columbian Exposition to the 1970s. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Consistently told by national security officials that Russians could hack the next elections, but I don't think most people really know what that ends up looking like. Uh, we all don't want to really think about that. We know that maybe there's probably paper ballots that are backups and somebody will do something and everything will turn out all right. But Claire Malone, senior political writer for 538, has done a piece about what would happen if something went wrong and put herself in the shoes of Russian hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us, Claire Malone. Thanks for having me. Explain why you wanted to do this from a Russian hacker point of view. Sure. So the story is a fictionalized imagining of what a worst-case scenario for Election Day looks like. And we wanted to do this because we thought a lot of people hear a lot of things about Russian hacking, but they don't quite know what it looks like. So I actually reported the piece. So I talked to a lot of national security experts, cyber experts, state officials, and sort of pieced together what it would actually look like if hackers were successful in getting into American election systems. What surprised you about what you learned? We all think of election days as, you know, you vote, and by the time you go to bed at 10 or 11, you know who's won the election probably. But we don't have a lot of concept of what happens in between. And what I really learned is national security officials are very worried about our federal elections because states have to run them. And that's an important part of federalism, right? Like one of the reasons that we have safe election systems is that they're decentralized. Every single state is in charge of running their own elections, which means they run making the ballots, they run online voter registration systems, they pick what voting machines and what voting machine administrators they use. And so one of the problems when it comes to national security, you know, cyber threats that cities and countries all over the world face is that we're asking county officials oftentimes, you know, county elections offices with a couple of IT people to go up against security-wise teams of Russian hackers or potentially North Korean or Iranian hackers who are sponsored by the state. And we're just not prepared for that. And that's really a problem we've only been thinking through pretty much since the 2016 elections. That's when the Department of Homeland Security got involved because we realized that there were Russian hackers scanning what turned out to be 21 state election systems. Now, they didn't get into all of them, but they were poking around and hoping to get into them. You know, what I learned most was this is a really new problem that we haven't necessarily thought through all that much until very recently. I think that was the scary takeaway from my thing is that our state system is so decentralized and vulnerable 
some of the states don't trust the Department of Homeland Security to scan their stuff? It's a problem of federalism, actually, like a very concrete problem of federalism, because states rightly want to maintain control of their elections. They want to be the people who are administering their elections. But yes, there was some confusion and some, I guess, ugly claims in the press back in 2016, right before the elections or just after the elections, when the Department of Homeland Security realized that Russian state hackers were trying to get into systems. And so they were taking precautions and scanning state election sites. And states didn't like the federal government coming onto their territory. And it is an interesting, you know, when you talk to former Department of Homeland Security officials and state officials, it becomes very apparent that state elections officials rightly said, you know, DHS people don't know anything about state elections. They were really having to learn on the fly. And the DHS people say, yes, that's true. But state elections people don't know as much as we do about bolstering security. And so you're really seeing a very interesting, actually quite old-fashioned American problem, which is where the balance of power between states and the federal government lies. And it's a very interesting question in addition to being tied up with an international security problem. And there is a U.S. election agency that has some role with security standards, but it's been hacked itself. Yeah, the Election Assistance Commission was started after the sort of fiasco of 2000 in, in Florida. People who are old enough to remember know what happened there. And U.S. elections officials and Congress decided, listen, we need a better way to make sure that voting machines and ballots are the best we can have. And so the Elections Assistance Commission was set up to test out voting machines and test voting systems, especially as more and more people used electronic voting machines following the hanging chad incidents. But the problem is that the election, the EAC is what they call it, it can't tell states, oh, nope, you can't use that voting system. It can only certify or decertify machines. It hasn't actually decertified any machines. And states get to choose basically whatever system they want to use. So that federal commission was hacked. You're right. Yes. But it also doesn't have much power at all to tell states what they can and can't use. It's really up to states to say, we know the security measures of this voting machine that we're using. We know the security measures of this contractor that we've contracted out to to make up our electronic ballots. So the federal government is a little bit hamstrung in this situation. So when California beefs up its security system, it gets rid of its old machines and other states buy them. They buy the weaker security systems. Yeah, California did a 2007 what they called a top-to-bottom review where they said some of these voting machines are very hackable or unsafe and some of them aren't. Now, to be fair to states... Some states have more money than others. So Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, which have a lot of these outdated, not secure voting machines, yes, maybe they should be decommissioning them and not using them, but they're also often hamstrung by budgetary issues. You know, how much is the state legislator allotting to refurbishing those voting machines? Now, Congress just did pass in the omnibus budget bill. They did give a certain amount of money for sprucing up voting equipment pre-2018 elections. But the Brennan Center, which is a a left-leaning think tank that focuses on elections and voting issues, said that's not going to be nearly enough money to make sure that all voting machines have paper trails for 2018 elections. So systems are facing a lot of budgetary issues. I'm talking with Claire Malone. She's senior political writer for 538, and she has written a piece called The Moscow Midterms. You know, I wanted to talk some about the Illinois situation. Illinois was prominently hacked at one point. What happened there? um... So in 2016, in June of 2016, right around the same time that, you know, as I said before, Russian hackers were scanning these 21 states, well, they found a way in in Illinois. And that was through the state's online voter registration, the online form where you sort of sign up to vote. They found a way where they could sort of bombard that page with a lot of attacks. 
And they got in the system and they hung out for a couple weeks. And sometime in early July, attacks on the system spiked. We don't really know why. It could be a mistake. Maybe they wanted people to know they were there. And people from the Illinois Elections Office noticed, took the site offline, notified the Department of Homeland Security. But Illinois was actually the only confirmed state that these Russian cyber actors actually got into. And, and I did talk to the Illinois people who said, yeah, you know, like this is something that we're working with the Department of Homeland Security on, but it's something we're worried about. And I will say, you know, to give the elections officials side of things, one thing that they said is, you know, we don't want people to not turn out to vote. We don't want them to have no faith in the Illinois elections system and the fact that their vote will count. So so one of the things that they're worried about as we're all talking about hacking is, you know, we don't want people to be scared off from voting. And I think cyber experts would answer that with totally fair, but we want people to have the right amount of faith in their system, i.e., we want the government to have, you know, bolstered security as much as possible to give people the proper amount of faith. But Illinois was a state that was hacked by Russian actors. They've since fixed a problem that let the Russian cyber actors into the system. But as I say in the piece, you know, we don't know what other attacks state-sponsored hackers might have formulated in the past couple of years, whether or not they're hanging out, you know, dormant in other systems. We don't know what's, we sort of don't know what's going on. And maybe people in the federal government do, and that information is classified. But right now, we're all kind of operating off of what we hear at congressional hearings, where intelligence officials say that we're maybe not doing enough. And, you know, if you'll watch some of the senatorial hearings that have been happening, U.S. senators from both parties are very displeased with the election preparation that we have for the 2018 midterms. Now, in the crux of your piece, you get to an imagined voting day where things go wrong. What would that look like? Sure. So the scenarios are twofold. And I'll start with the one that is perhaps more likely to happen. And that is that hackers could somehow get into online voter registration systems, like what happened in Illinois, or digital poll books at polling stations. And what would happen there is hackers could potentially change the information on voter files so that when you show up to vote, something about your ID looks different from what they have in their computer system. So you wouldn't be allowed to vote or you'd be given a provisional ballot, but your ballot wouldn't be counted that day. Now, I should note here for Illinois listeners that there's no evidence that any records of voters were changed in the Illinois hack. So, But what happens in that instance is in Election Day when lots of people's IDs don't match the computer system, you get really long lines, you get people's feeling of disenfranchisement. Um, it's a hacking of our faith, right? It's a hacking of a faith in institutions. Former DHS officials talked to me a little bit about there was some worry that we should watch the, you know, the official sites of state election systems where they put up the election results and make sure that uh, the vote count, the actual vote count mount matches what's on an online website that, you know, we hope the Russian cyber actors don't screw with it there. So that's one way. It's basically just sowing chaos on election day. The Russian tactic is pretty much chaos making. So that's scenario one. And that's a, that's a scenario that cyber and voting experts told me is like decently, that's, that's a pretty probable one. The less probable one, but still within the realm of reality, which I lay out in the piece, is that hackers could find a way into electronic voting machines. Now, state elections board officials will tell you electronic voting machines never touch the Internet. And that can be the case. But elections officials, county officials have to draw up these electronic ballots because when you go to this voting machine, you're either, you know, you're probably pressing a touchscreen that has the ballot on it. Those ballots have to be drawn up on a computer and then transferred into the voting machine. One thing that security experts are worried about is that those computers aren't what they call air-gapped, 
maybe the computer that you're drawing up the ballot on, you know, it's not connected to the internet through a cord in the wall, but maybe a USB stick that you've put into that computer has been used on your home computer or another computer in the office that isn't safe. And the worry is, is that an elections official could fall victim to, say, a phishing scheme where you click on a bad, we've all seen these, you click on a bad email and whoops, all of a sudden there's malware in your computer. And that that malware could infect possibly a USB stick that then goes into that supposedly air-gapped computer where you drop the ballot, and then that ballot is transferred to the voting machine, as is the malware. So that's the bad scenario. And in that scenario, potentially if a hacker could get control of an electronic voting machine, they could actually change the vote count. And so they could they could alter the outcome of an election in a particular district or state. Um, now, probably your listeners are saying, well, don't we have don't we have backup for that? Don't we count the votes afterwards? A lot of these electronic voting machines are supposed to have paper printouts. Some of them don't, but some a lot of them do. Um, but the one thing that, that election security experts are really worried about is that they say we don't audit our elections very well afterwards. Um, and the, the kind of audit that they're pushing for is something called a statistical audit, um, where you do a sample of ballots that'll just give you a good mathematical sense about whether or not something is amiss in your elections. And, and these experts say that not enough states use that in the aftermath of elections to kind of double check the math. If you could wave a magic wand and fix something, would it be some kind of federal standard for elections in this country? Well, that gets into a really, that gets back to our tricky question of federalism. I think, you know, what a lot of people agree on is that individual states need to be paying a lot more attention to this and they need to update the standards for their online systems, you know, the security at the Board of Elections office and the security surrounding their individual voting machines. So basically, everyone's operating on like, you know, 2005, 2010 internet safety standards. And we're way past that. You know, we saw a couple of weeks ago, a cyber attack that crippled the city of Atlanta and its official infrastructure. So cities and states do need to make this a priority, I think. They need to say, our elections board should have state-of-the-art security. It shouldn't just be you know, bureaucrats fumbling around on, you know, Windows 2002. This is, that's the concrete democracy in action, right? The way you vote. And those offices should have state-of-the-art equipment and they should have IT teams. And the people who who make voting machines and who are contractors who sometimes draw ballots for states, those people, I think, should be more answerable to federal regulatory power or state regulatory power because they're private companies and we don't know what their security practices are. So I think there needs to be a lot more transparency and attention paid to voting security. People here have the option of taking a paper ballot. Do, mm-hmm. Should we feel any safer about that? So paper ballots, usually what we're talking about with paper ballots is that they you fill out the bubble and then they're optically scanned is what they call it. So it's kind of like when you would take the SATs or any kind of Scantron test in high school or college. That's what it is. Um, And those have a paper trail. You can actually count the ballot afterwards, which is good um, because some electronic voting machines, they just have the electronic record. Um, But optical scan machines can also be hacked. So we need to be just as vigilant um, with making sure that those machines are up to security standards and that the proper kind of post-election audits are being done on paper ballots as well. One of the scenarios you spiel out here is with a clerk in Wisconsin. Was it Wisconsin or Florida? 
Well, there are two, but the, yes, I, there is a there is an elections clerk in Wisconsin, and I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> it's, so, it's it's so realistic. It sounds so realistic, and, and they've got a decentral, super decentralized state system that the Russians know that it's decentralized, and they're just picking. They're just waiting for this person. Um, yeah. <laughs> is there any? There's no um, way to defend against a middle-aged person uh, clicking on stuff, is there? <laughs> I know my mother would would be angry at me for for portraying um, for portraying boomers that way. It was not computer savvy, but yes, that is a concern. Now I should note here that I picked states that did have decentralized system systems. Wisconsin, in particular, um, allows its municipalities and counties to run their own elections. So you know, two towns next to each other in Wisconsin might have different kinds of voting machines and totally different kinds of voting security. But yeah, Bonnie is my fictional Wisconsin election clerk, and she clicks on a Russian phishing scam and kind of doesn't realize it, in part because, you know, it's sometimes hard to discern what's a phishing scam and what's not, especially ones that are sophisticated. In fact, a cyber expert that I was talking to, you know, it happened that the day before we talked, he said, I almost clicked on a link that was bad. They're getting really good with making the email addresses look familiar to ones that you might know as, say, a Wisconsin election clerk. Maybe they made the email to look like, you know, someone you communicate with in the government or an outside vendor. But there is a little bit of a problem with cyber literacy. People who came of age as the internet evolved maybe organically know, oh, that's that's probably a phishing scheme and that one isn't. But some people have to, to learn, you know, a, more, you know, they have to become more cyber literate. And I think it's important that elections officials, old, young, whomever, um, are well-versed in that kind of cyber hygiene, that kind of cyber security where they know what emails are bad. They know to use a USB stick once and then throw it out after they've used it on ballot making. So, yeah, I was trying to kind of imagine, you know, Bonnie's a – I hope I painted Bonnie as – I think she's a she's a smart lady and good at her job. But of this particular thing, this cyber security thing, she's a little bit, you know – an innocent because she she hasn't had a lot of exposure, doesn't use the internet that much in her personal life, and so that's kind of that's kind of what I was trying to get at that cyber literacy gap that we have. I, but you know, you get in a clicking zone where you're just going through emails or something. You're just clicking, 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 <clears throat> clicking, clicking, and you're not really thinking about it. And it's then bad. And then you're <laughs> clicking on something you're like, oh my god, I shouldn't have clicked on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that that sick feeling in your stomach when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm a middle aged guy. <laughs> Are you going to take a paper ballot? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am blushing right now because I don't know what the New York, what my New York district (laughs) uses voting machine wise. What I will say is, you know, maybe I'll vote early, right, and vote by mail. There are a few states that do vote by mail, and that's a good way to, to guarantee that, you know, you've got a secure vote going. You've got a paper ballot, you fill out at home, you mail in, they count it up. They count it up. So who knows? That's a good question, though. I hadn't thought of it until just now. <laughs> Claire Malone is a senior political writer for 538, and uh, she has written the piece, The Moscow Midterms, on their website, and you can check it out and kind of get into the unimaginable of uh, Russian hacking of a U.S. election. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
Coming up after the break, we'll have our film contributor, Milo Stelik, and we'll talk with a couple of the filmmakers in town for the 2018 Chicago Latino Film Fest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor here on Worldview, Milos Stalik from Facets. It's great to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Well, the 2018 Chicago Latino Film Fest is swinging into its final week, coming down to the home stretch, and um, there's lots of films left. Yeah, largest, biggest festival of films from Latin America, Spain, Portugal, the whole diaspora in the world, Chicago, in the 34th year. Uh, let's talk with a couple of the filmmakers you brought here. Uh, Maria de Rivas is the director of Princesita, which is, she's from Chile, and uh, this film was, a ch- or is, a Chilean-Argentine co-production. And it's a very unusual film because it's set in a beautiful area of southern Chile. Uh, Chile. Uh, main character is a 12-year-old girl named Tamara who lives in a very rural community and with a weird guy whose name is Miguel, who's kind of a cult leader. And Mariali Rivas is here to join us. So the idea for the film came from where? From your dream? No. <laughs> Actually, it came from a an, from an real story that happened in the south of Chile of a family cult that has this girl. And they thought she was going to save us from the end of the world. And so you knew this family or? No, I, I read on the newspaper. Uh, okay. And yeah. then how real, did you research this or how realistic was this? It was an inspiration. I did research it. The story was much more crude in a way. Uh, but I'm really interested in, in this cult, in mindsets, because I think we, we as a society, we live in a kind of a cult mentality with certain rules that are um, managing, especially women, men as well. But Well, because she, she's uh, 12 years old, she's kind of a prepubescent girl, yes. just on the edge of becoming sexuality, and sex plays a large role in this, because yes. it's not just religion, but the way that the two are intertwined, which we've seen in other cults. Yes. I think everything is like that. I think society start ruling on women's body when... We became women, I mean, when we are ready to have babies, so we can be used by males. So it's interesting. I think for me, it's a met- met- metaphor of the, of the society. Well, you've way. been very critical of the Chilean society, male society, and how it treats women. And is, do you think Chile is specific in this? Or, because suddenly there's a lot of cases of sex abuse by religion in Chile, right? I mean, which have become pretty yeah. famous. But just is Chile very different in how it treats women? I think we didn't have a, an abortion law until, in any case, until probably six months ago. And now what happened is that they introduced this object, 
conscious objection. I mean, you can refuse to give uh, abortion services to a woman. And this is only in case of rape, if the mother is going to die or if the baby is going to die in the womb. And most of the doctors are saying, are saying that they won't provide this service, which I think is very violent to females in Chile. So I, I, we are a very conservative country in these terms, uh, and I think it's a country that abuses women. Well, you said that, that women have been abused by the Chilean state. That's what you're referring yes. to. Yes. Yeah. And you also, you've also spoken about how difficult it is to make films in Chile because of the very small amount of money that you can get for a film. So it limits, and your film looks really beautiful. I mean, way out of scale with, I'm sure, in terms of what it costs. But um, so how do, you, how do you conquer that? How do you... I have the profound luck to work with Fabula, which is the production company that just won the Oscars now in February. So they are the biggest company in Chile. They are my producers. They are great guys, very supportive producers, very bright and intelligent men. Uh, so it is a fight always because they only give us six uh, grants a year for six movies. So you need to fight with the rest of 300 or four, 400 filmmakers for that grant. But I have had the lack of gaining that money. It's not much money. It's like $200,000 only for six projects a year. So, yeah, we're fighting, but I'm very proud of the Chilean movie uh, landscape because we won the Oscar, a really good friend of mine, and Pablo Larraín. I mean, I think we have a lot of great voices for a small country with that type of law, which I, so I'm, I'm very happy and proud, actually, <laughs> of the Chilean film. We're talking with Mariala Rivas, and she is a filmmaker. Her latest film is Princita, and it's at the 2018 Chicago Latino Film Festival, and it runs tonight and Sunday. Yes. And I, I'm interested in your... Um, your cult psychology interests. I was talking with a psychologist earlier this year who had been in a cult and then became a psychologist to figure out why this happens to people. And her conclusion was that um, there are something called totalist systems and they can be in a marriage or they can be a country and everywhere in between. And there is just a controlling mechanism kind of born out of the paranoia of the the, the cult leader and things that, that largely happened to them in their childhood and insecurities and their need mm -hmm. for totally secured attachments. Um, that's a, it, it's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot going on there in a, in, in our, for our country in the United States, for lots of countries. I, I, how did you get so into this? I think, well, I went to a Waldorf school when I was a child that it kind of has a cult side of it because they believe in a certain philosophy which I was always kind of uncomfortable with because I don't understand that someone can think they have the whole truth of something. It just feels strange. But mostly for me, I think all religions are a cult. My country is a Catholic country, which I think is basically a cult that did well, you know. <laughs> but it's, I think we live under this impression, which is a fiction, a narration that a male god gave life to a guy by... I mean, it's a story. It's just a child's story. And we all kind of believe in that because we're immersed, even if we, you are an, uh, uh, someone that doesn't believe in God. This is the narration that we are inserted in. 
And I think it's crazy. So for me, it interests me in, in all levels, not only in the cult level, because I think society has a cult thinking. And now, well, I don't know, even your president, though, it's like a cult thinking, you know? Right. It's so easy to get into this state of mind of... It's a, contr- a controlling thing. Yes. There's like sick, they want total security, and they are going to get it at the expense of everybody else. Yes, because we're all going to die, and we cannot assume the only truth that we know so we just run away from that with different ideas which is i don't know well what's your next film about how do you can you follow up on this and do more it's an, actually it's an american i don't know if i can say this because we're signing the contracts but it's an american film it's about a, it's a real story about this neo-nazi woman that went into jail and fell in love with a black woman and she changed all her ways because oh, of wow. love <laughs> all right so so love can get you out of it, hopefully. <laughs> that is the hope that we need to, to keep in our hearts, I guess. Mariella Rivas is a filmmaker, and her film, uh, Princita, is tonight and Sunday at the Chicago Latino Film Festival. We're going to swing over and talk to another filmmaker, Bielos. Well, uh, you know, switching sides to, have ha- I guess, a happy <laughs> story. <laughs> 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 Ricardo Oliver Lara is a co-director of Nurican Basket, which is about... It's about the 79 Puerto Rico national basketball team. The, the, was, uh, most of the players were born and raised in New York City, and they decided to play for Puerto Rico uh, in the event. Uh, the event uh, was the Pan American Games, 79 Pan American Games. It was a very uh, controversial time in Puerto Rico with political uh, repression going on, and also with the government that a lot, it looks like a lot of Trump's kind of <laughs> government. And they were, um, it was a very political tense. And the final game of the Pan American Games for the gold medal of basketball was with, uh, with Team USA. And it was like, uh, it was played in Puerto Rico. So you can imagine all these things going on. So it, uh, it's, it's mo- the movie most is 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 like um, a way to talk about some things in uh, Puerto Rican reality, you know, about our diaspora, um, about identity. Uh, most people, most nations of the world, don't have this kind of situation, or they don't ask themselves much about identity because. Uh, uh, about national identity because that that comes naturally, right? Nobody questions you or there's no problem with that. But when you are a colony, like we are Puerto Rico, a colony of the United States government, then it's always a question, even if, even though you don't wanna you don't wanna ask that up to yourself. So our reality is that we have more Puerto Ricans living outside the island than inside the island. Uh, in fact. I've I, I never been, this is my first time in Chicago, but this has been a historical play for our Puerto Rican diaspora. Absolutely. So that's why this movie knows, is not only about sports, it's, all, uh, it's mostly about identity and uh, political. Uh, <laughs> it's all the uh, fun. Cold of War. A- well, let's put it like, like this <laughs> it's like a Cold War 
thing. You've got all the fun of a sports film, but mm-hmm. all the complexity of a <laughs> colonial car wreck. That's it. That's it. But then the movies, the, uh, we tried to make, I think we, 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 we do it, we, we were successful to make a, a, not a boring movie, you know? Uh, so uh, the sports is like, sorry, you know what's cool is the, all the basketball players are from New York. Right. They're Puerto Ricans from New York, but they are completely embraced by the Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. Oh, it's, it's like they, they live uh, uh, a Puerto Rican dream. Instead yeah. of the American dream, a Puerto Rican dream. Most of these guys were born and raised in Harlem, Spanish Harlem and in the Bronx. Uh, they come from very uh, poor places. But then all of a sudden, they became heroes in Puerto Rico. When I was young, I wanted to be like them. That's the way I want to play. You and, know? and you were you were young where in Puerto Rico or here? No, I never. I, I live all my life in Puerto Rico. Oh, okay, okay. So this is like uh, uh, this is like uh, a question about diaspora and identity, but from our from the uh, point of view of somebody who has lived all his life in the islands. Okay, okay, but you must have been what two years old or whatever when this happened. When this happens? When, when the event happened? When this? Oh, yeah. I was three years old. Three years old. You okay. know, my mother have <laughs> have in my house the album, the ones that they use, they make that with, with my first hair and my first tooth, and they were my first tickets, sports tickets, the one of the Pan American Games, seven seventy nine Pan American Games. So. Um, there's also some very uh, the, the the American team have a lot of icons that if you're familiar with the history of basketball you can figure it out right um, like uh, Bobby Knight was the was the head coach of the American team he was very racist in Puerto Rico he offended us like he did a lot of things that you can't imagine he, Bobby Knight Bobby Knight I, I can't no, believe it <laughs> um, they have a lot of uh, Hall of Fame players you know you. They, Team USA have uh, like Isaiah Thomas. When he was 17 years old, he killed us. He killed us in the last game. You know, he he, he robbed us from our gold medal. He was tough. <laughs> he was tough, and he had only 17 years. He was 17 years old. Uh, so, if you're into sports, you will like the film. If you're into politics, identity, you will like the thing because right now we this 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 film started four years ago. Uh, right now, with the, after Hurricane Maria and all the political tensions that we are suffering right now, um, then we had the uh, the highest migration rate that we have in decades. So the yeah. identity question is is very uh, is happening right now in most places. I, I was talking uh, to Alejandro uh, before, and he told me that the new Puerto Ricans are called the Hurricane Puerto Ricans. You know, <laughs> they, because uh, they came uh, just recently. So, uh, it, the movie just came at the perfect moment to question those things. Uh, right now, our government is uh, uh, from it's like uh, pro statehood. Uh, to became a state from the United States, uh, he's in the offense right now trying to do that. Uh, but there's a lot of people uh, in Puerto Rico that don't agree to that. We we think, oh, Americans are perfect. I love, I love, I love Americans, you know. But we, I am not American. I am Puerto Rican. We were Puerto Ricans before the American 
took possession of our island 400 years before we were a possession of Spain, just like Chile was. But we are now a possession of the United States and with the worst government in the United States that, uh, that we could think of. Uh, so I think it helps you uh, reflect what's happening today in Puerto Rico. Uh, we have find that gets very emotional to a lot of persons and, and at least that's, that's the objective that we try to do to this picture to provoke to provoke mm -hmm. in the context in the, in the actual context about how, uh, how we are who we are um, and when we can do you know our future All that with baseball, as, with basketball. basketball. <laughs> in, in there, too. New York Rican Basket, uh, the filmmaker is Ricardo Oliver Lara, and you're showing it at the Segundo Ruiz Belvis uh, Cultural Center. It's yes. the final showing, and, and so that's a terrific place to show it. I'm sure you will get a grand reception there. Uh, that's uh, terrific, and it's been fun talking about the 2018 Chicago uh, Latino Film Festival, which runs through uh, next Thursday. Milo Stelik, our film contributor, great to see you. Great to be here, Jerome. <laughs> coming, coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, and we'll talk about uh, some new art exhibits in town. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen, Nari Safavi, is here. Nari's one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange and takes us on this tour of international stuff. Nice to see you, Nari. Great. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again, and we're going to go to China first. We are? We are. We're going to talk about the Dragon Light Show that's happening on Soldier Field in the parking lot over there, and this is supposed to be a spectacular kind of a light projection show with all kinds of Chinese food festival and other things going on at the Soldier Field, interesting thing to uh, take family to, and it starts tomorrow, Saturday, at 5.30 p.m., goes on to almost midnight, about 11 o'clock, and it's going to be going on for several days and weeks over there. It sounds crazy. I, there is a dragon lantern display, 200 foot long, two stories high. Exactly. <laughs> There's it will be a spectacle, definitely. 35 sets of larger-than-life, handcrafted life sculptures that glow at night. It, it happens only in the evening from 5.30 to Yeah, it has 11. to be dark outside for it to happen, yeah. and uh, But it's definitely worth seeing, and it seems like they have really worked hard to put it together. There are live cultural performances every night, traditional Chinese handcraft demonstrations, Chinese and Asian food options throughout the festival. It's kind of a big deal, and it's happening in the parking lot of Soldiers Field or something. Yeah, they're basically using this whole uh, light show thing as a pretext to have a full-on China festival covering all kinds of things. All right. People can get more information at dragonlightschicago.com. And it begins tomorrow at 5.30 at Soldier Field. What's next, Nari? And also another thing is uh, join uh, Egyptologists. Uh, we're going to Egypt next. 
and uh, Egyptologist uh, Dr. Toy Scaff for the Graceland Cemetery, the Egyptomania edition. And it's happening tomorrow also at Saturday, for, uh, Saturday April 14th. Now, this sounds like an interesting idea. Yeah. Graceland Cemetery. It's a little bit morbid. Egypt edition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I get what's going on here. Some guys build pyramids to themselves. Exactly. Exactly. This is all about the inspirations that are coming from Egypt for all kinds of morbid motives. So <laughs> it's definitely uh, a, a thing that you, you know, it's uh, some people, uh, it may not be necessarily for everybody, but it will be interesting to check it out tomorrow from 10.30 a.m. till noon. It's only going on till noon. So there's a uh, Facebook event for this, and you can check out Atlas Obscura Society of Chicago and their tour of the Graceland Cemetery with Egyptologist Dr. Foy Scalf to learn about the meaning, impact, legacy of Egyptian influence design at Great Graceland Cemetery, the last place I would think I would go for quality for Egyptian, Egyptology, Egyptology but I got, projects. Yeah, Definitely. Right. Lastly, Nari, let's, where, where are we going? Yeah, this is an event we've been talking about for a couple of weeks. We've been mentioning it parenthetically, but Arte Diseño Chicago exhibition happening, uh, going from now till August 19th, and it's, uh, it's happening at the National Museum of Mexican Art. Art in Pilsen, very, very fascinating show, a legacy of design by Mexican-Americans who lived in Chicago and also the Americans who were influenced by Mexican uh, creativity. And we have Cesar Moreno uh, from the Mexican Art Museum, National Mexican Art Museum here with us. Cesario Moreno, director and visual artist and chief curator at the National Museum of Mexican Art. It's awesome. I, I, this, this, your museum is just such an asset to the city. Thank you for everything because it's just a great place to go. And I take visitors from out of town. I took a friend from Pakistan not too long ago, <laughs> and he was like, wow, this is fantastic. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, um, I, thank you so much for that. Uh, our museum is definitely uh, not only for Latinos or for Mexicans. It is for everybody. And I think the exhibitions that we do there really show – uh, they build bridges and show everybody what we all have in common and uh, what a great city we all work in and live in. Uh, so, so this exhibition really does focus on a lot of uh, the early artists who came to Chicago. Some of them came not even knowing they were artists. They came uh, as laborers right. who, who knew how to use a machete, knew how to, how to carve wood, how to carve stone. Uh, and then while they were here in Chicago uh, taking classes at Hull House or classes at the Art Institute, uh, they started to identify as craftspeople or artists or artisans or uh, just belonging to this sort of creative community that we have uh, living in Chicago. How did you get some of the – did you have all these in your collection or did you have to reach out and, and really work it? Because that sounds like a, you know, a, a a spread thing. Yeah, no, it was it was uh, over two years of looking for artists and then, of course, trying to find pieces that we could display. Right. Uh, if there's no artwork to be found, uh, it, as great of a story as the artist could have had in their life, uh, obviously it doesn't make for a, a wonderful exhibition. So, you know, we, we went as far as uh, – uh, Oregon, uh, down to New Orleans, uh, certainly even looking among the collections of other places in Chicago. So we were uh, we were fortunate enough to borrow works from the uh, Chicago History Museum, the Art Institute, uh, the Hull House, uh, Snipe Museum nearby. So so that along with our own collection, I think really um, 
really tells many stories. I, I hate to keep calling this a narrative because it certainly is not a narrative. It is, it is uh, what brings them together is the fact that they're all on display in, in one place. But it is certainly a, a multifaceted story that starts in 1893 and goes all the way to the 1970s. We have two pieces on our walls right now that were here for the Columbian Exposition in 1893. Ah, cool. What, what, what do they look like? Um, they are uh, two paintings, uh, obviously from, from typical, I would say, uh, uh, 18th, uh, 19th century Mexico uh, from the, during the Porfiriato when, when the separation of church and state really started. And so there was artists were trying to show how Mexico was secular but yet spiritual. Um, and, and, of course, landscapes. Landscapes, uh, you can't escape the 19th century without landscape painting. Um, and, and the painter, one of the famous painters, Jose Maria Velasco, who came to Chicago to help install, um, we have a quote of his up on the wall that I think really sheds light on the Mexicans uh, in, in Chicago. I actually thought of it a while back. You had people on from the, the, the Food Encyclopedia, uh, and I was almost going to call in at that <laughs> point because uh, it's documented in 1893 that, that Jose Maria Velasco went out into the streets of Chicago and encountered a gentleman selling tamales uh, on, hmm. on a street corner. And so, of course, even though the census was not counting the Mexican community at that time, uh, if he was selling tamales on the corner of Chicago, there were Mexicans here to buy them. I'm positive of that. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all thanks to a, uh, a grant that you got from the, uh, from the Terra Foundation. And you actually, you know, this is really interesting. You, hire, you, had, you could hire, you could afford to hire young people to be the eyes and ears and the scouts of the museum and go all over the place and locate these, this stuff for you. Yeah, that is true. The, the, the Terra Foundation of American Art was very generous. Uh, they have a, a Many, many exhibits and projects planned for 2018 at different museums throughout the Chicagoland area. Um, and all of them focus on Chicago's history and contributions to art and design uh, in this country. And yes, you're, you're 100% correct. Uh, good funding really lets us... Long-term uh, planning. Exactly. And, uh, do a little bit more research, dig a little bit further. And uh, I think this exhibition really, really... Uh, um, no, it shows. It yeah, definitely yeah. shows. Do you have a favorite piece that you snagged out there? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> there are quite a few incredible pieces. Uh, you know, uh, um, Enrique Alferes was, was one of the artists who was here in the 1920s. Uh, and he has an incredible life, but he came up and he was a, a pupil of Laredo Taft. Uh, and he was here for a few years. He, he carved at the 333 Michigan building right right at the bridge in Michigan Avenue. He, he carved some of the, the bas-reliefs up there. Uh, his life and his work is, in, is exceptional. There's one piece in particular that, that we have on display of a soldadera, which mm -hmm. is they're, they're women who fought in the Mexican Revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. And um, when you first walk in, you see this proud woman standing. You see her, her profile, and she's holding her baby in one hand. Um, but if you walk around behind the sculpture, you'll see that she's ready to defend and fight for her future and her child. Uh, I think it's a very powerful piece. Yeah. And Cesario, if you had to summarize it, would you say that there is a Chicago school of creativity to uh, or design for all of these? Is there a common thread in all of this? You know, I, the, the thread may not be as visual as it may be intellectual. Um, I think many of the people who were creating these works of art um, shared in the idea and appreciation of labor, 
of of so definitely they were they were socialist benting they were they they you know they leaned left uh, the the power to the people uh, that's kind of one of the ideas that comes through whether they were Jewish American artists who would go to Mexico or exactly. whether they were Mexican artists who were here in Chicago uh, a lot of the politics and and uh, the the love of labor and and the voice of the people comes through in the pieces yeah absolutely wow. I, I noticed that you're screening a video about Katza Aslan the um, community center in Pilsen that has been purchased and turned into apartments and the mural got painted over the mural that was an inspiration for so many other murals in Pilsen and now the mural's back but the, <laughs> but the community center is gone right, right. Uh, it's been a trauma for that thing it, and it's nice that you're showing a film about the, the early days of this thing yeah we we, uh, we end the exhibition with a short uh, a 17-minute uh, sort of documentary, Sarita Hernandez was uh, instrumental in directing it and pulling that together. But it really talks about the, the what was happening in 1970 when it changed from Howell House to Casa Aslan. And it really became this mecca. It really became this beehive for artistic activity and political activity as well. Yeah. Uh, whether it was printing posters or, or placards to carry at the protest or Correct. whether it was ideas of painting murals in, in a neighborhood that is now known for its murals. So it really, it really we end the exhibit in the 1970s uh, and this whole political artistic movement. Well, I hope a lot of people get out and get to see Arte Diseño Chicago, and it is running through the August 19th. So you've got most of the summer to do it. And the National Museum of Mexican Art is always there for your pleasure in Pilsen. Best gift shop in the city, <laughs> hands down. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. That's great. I, I drink from a mug every day. I get there. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, it's been a huge thrill having you. Thanks a lot, Cesario Moreno, Director of Visual Arts and Chief Curator at the National Museum of Mexican Art. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Hope you can join us next week for Worldview. We've got lots of stuff, great stuff coming for you. And we're going to have Timothy Snyder. He's the author of On Tyranny. His new book is The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, and America. He's quite a barn burner. Join us Monday for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Anna Waters and Galilee Abdullah for production support. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Great seeing you, Nari Safavi. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.